Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Helaman, Chapter 8 This chapter contains the second part of Nephi's sermon, and as we know, this was to a spontaneously assembled group of onlookers in the city of Zarahemla. This multitude of people, as it was described, formed first as a colonel of passers-by, certain men, as the text told us in verse 10, who heard Nephi lamenting upon his tower, quote, which was in the garden of Nephi, which was by the highway which led to the chief market, which was in the city of Zarahemla, unquote. And that was from verse 10. These certain men, which, by the way, becomes an interesting play on words, uh, since as the story will go on, we'll see that the lack of certainty of these certain men will impel five of them to play a key role in the next chapter, in Helaman chapter 9. But we'll come back to that later. So these certain men gather others to their number until they are sufficiently large to be described as a multitude. As verse 11 told us, they saw Nephi as he was pouring out his soul unto God upon the tower, and they ran and told the people what they had seen, and the people came together in multitudes. As Nephi spoke to the assembly on this occasion, it became clear to us that his central point seemed to be that the people had violated what we could call the promised land covenant, uh, which was first articulated by Father Lehi in this manner in Second Nephi chapter 1, verse 20. Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. But inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from my presence. And in fact, it seems that Nephi felt at this point that the people had irrevocably violated this covenant by this point, at least for those who would still not repent. As he told the people in verse 28 of the previous chapter, And except ye repent, ye shall perish. Even your lands shall be taken from you, and ye shall be destroyed from off the face of the earth. This brought Nephi to a natural stopping point in his sermon. As he ended in verse 29 by telling the people that he was not standing alone in this idea. He said that he knew the things he had spoken of, quote, not of myself that I know these things, as he said in verse 29, But behold, I know that these things are true because the Lord God has made them known unto me. Therefore I testify that they shall be. So even though Nephi stood physically alone among these people as a champion of this message, he will show in this chapter, Helaman chapter 8, that he comes from a long line of prophets that have spoken of the need to repent in preparation for the coming of the Son of God. He will cite Moses, Abraham, Zenic, Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and of course, Lehi. These and all the holy prophets that he mentions who spoke on this subject, as Nephi will explain in verse 18 of this chapter, were called by the order of God, quote, yea, even after the order of his son, and this that it would be shown unto the people a great many thousand years before his coming, that even redemption should come unto them. So this is what we will read of and discuss in this chapter, Helaman chapter 8. We will find that Nephi's tower sermon will resume in verse 10, but only after he is rebuffed by the unbelieving judges that are found among the assembled crowd. In fact, they remain so unmoved by what Nephi has said before that we can only guess that they are determined to be so. They will say in verse 5 and 6, Why do you suffer this man to revile against us? And this is after Nephi has said incredible things. For behold, he doth condemn all this people, even unto destruction. Yea, and also that these our great cities shall be taken from us, that we shall have no place in them. And now we know that this is impossible, 
they say in verse 6. For behold, we are powerful and our cities great. Therefore, our enemies can have no power over us. We have read of this type of confidence before. Expressions of misplaced devotion in other cities that have also fallen. We can recall Laman and Lemuel's confidence in Jerusalem, for example. As Nephi, and this is the original Nephi, said of them in 1 Nephi chapter 2, verse 1, Neither did they believe that Jerusalem, that great city, could be destroyed, according to the words of the prophets. And we might remember the confidence of the Nephites in King Noah's island kingdom, whose belief in their newly renovated city was reflected in their idea that, quote, their 50 could stand against thousands of the Lamanites. That was in Mosiah chapter 11, verse 19. Or finally, consider the haughty Nephites of Ammonihah, who said in response to Alma's prophecy regarding the destruction of their city that, quote, We will not believe thy words if thou shouldst prophesy that this great city should be destroyed in one day. That was in Alma chapter 9, verse 4. Well, we certainly know how that story ended. And we know how it will end in this instance, in the city of Zarahemla as well. At the very end of this chapter, Nephi will mobilize these overconfident antagonists to action after offering a stunning prophecy regarding the death of the chief judge. This will leave us with probably the most compelling cliffhanger in the Book of Mormon narrative. So we'll explore that in more detail in the next chapter. It suffices our purposes here to point out that Nephi will demonstrate that his gift of prophecy can be applied to the very immediate future and it will see a detailed and specific fulfillment. In this way, Helaman chapter 8 can remind us that like Nephi in this chapter, true prophets will consistently link their teachings to those of their canonized predecessors. This connects their message to the messianic moorings of the ancients. At the same time, as Nephi will show us at the end of this chapter when he predicts the death of the chief judge, and again, we'll explore that more in, in detail in Helaman chapter 9, that prophets are able to speak to contemporary and local issues of the day with a degree of uncanny clarity and prescience that can only come from one who is enlightened by the vantage point of God. Well, with those introductory thoughts in mind, let's look now at the structure of this chapter in Helaman chapter 8. The beginning of this chapter brings us to a pause in Nephi's words, since we've just heard from him, his kind of his monologue on this tower. So now we'll see what the response of the people was. And in verses 1 through 7, we'll see that members of the assembled crowd, who we can guess are, are part of the Gadianton band, they refute Nephi's message, uh, particularly the idea that they will not prosper in the land and that their city would be destroyed. And in fact, they call for his arrest. Mormon is careful not only to describe that, but in verse 4, he tells us what the motives were of these antagonists. And in fact, he says even more specifically that these were judges, and they did belong to the secret band of Gadianton in verse 1. And then in verse 4, it says that these judges were angry with him because he spake plainly unto them concerning their secret works of darkness. Then to our relief in verses 8 through 9, we'll find that there are others in this crowd who defend Nephi. And they say, let this man alone, for he is a good man. And those things which he saith will surely come to pass, except we repent. Verse 10 will tell us that Nephi can now see that he has gained favor in the eyes of some. And this encourages him to continue to speak, which he now does in verse 10. He'll go in that mode all the way to verse 25. And as I mentioned in the introduction, he'll, he'll talk about other holy prophets who have said similar things. And remember that the thought that he ended with at the end of the previous chapter was that he was not alone in saying the things that he was saying. So that takes us through verse 25, and he'll cover that particular topic and go into more detail about each of these prophets and what it is that they've prophesied. Then in verses 26 through 28, the final three verses of this chapter, Nephi will do something utterly astonishing. Uh, he will prophesy the death of the chief judge. This isn't anything in the distant future. This is something in the very immediate future. And he prophesies in great detail about all of this. Of course, all of those details will unfold for us as we turn the page and move into Helaman chapter 9. 
So let's return now to verse 1 for a reading. And now it came to pass that when Nephi had said these words, Behold, there were men who were judges, who also belonged to the secret band of Gadianton, and they were angry. And they cried out against him, saying unto the people, Why do ye not seize upon this man, and bring him forth, that he may be condemned according to the crime which he has done? So that the nature of their question here suggests to us already that there are some in the crowd that are sympathetic towards Nephi, or they already would have seized him. Verse 2, Why seest thou this man, and hearest him revile against this people and against our law? So clearly the people have experienced the power of what it is that Nephi has said in the previous chapter, the first part of that tower sermon, and their consciences are, are pricked, and they sense truth. And so now these judges, these members of the Gadianton band, are trying to counteract the effect that Nephi has had and undo the good that he has done and persuade the people that have assembled around them. Verse 3, For behold, Nephi had spoken unto them concerning the corruptness of their law, Mormon says. Yea, many things did Nephi speak which cannot be written, and nothing did he speak which was contrary to the commandments of God. And those judges were angry with him because he spake plainly unto them concerning their secret works of darkness. Nevertheless, they durst not lay their own hands upon him, for they feared the people, lest they should cry out against them. So Mormon is giving us all of this uh, this little interjection here in verses 3 and 4. And uh, a very interesting point there to end with, that uh, why didn't these judges just go after him and stop him? And that's because, uh, again, you get the sense that there are people in this large crowd, in this multitude, who are sympathetic to Nephi. And these judges can't operate in secret and operate unopposed, if that's the case. Reynolds and Sojal have written, Nephi fiercely denounced the evil that existed among them, and warned of impending disaster if they persisted in following iniquity's enticements and its empty promise of reward. His plainness and frankness enraged the corrupt judges who had been placed in office by equally corrupt men. Nephi testified of the corruption by which their laws had ceremonially made unclean, and that how, through popular voice, the power to alter them from the code of King Mosiah had been delegated to hearts, diseased and depraved, who had changed them to suit their own infatuation and greed. Verse 5, Therefore they, meaning the judges, did cry unto the people, saying, Why do you suffer this man to revile against us? This probably would have been somewhat shocking to many members of this multitude because having heard Nephi say what he did in Helaman chapter 7, it would not have sounded like reviling. That's not not the way that it would have been. Uh, He did tell them to repent, but it would have had the, the sound and the spirit of a true prophet. But that's how these judges describe what he has done. Why do you suffer this man to revile against us? For behold, he doth condemn all this people, even unto destruction. Yea, and also that these our great cities shall be taken from us, that we shall have no place in them. And now we know that this is impossible. For behold, we are powerful, and our cities great. Therefore, our enemies can have no power over us. As I mentioned in the introduction, we've certainly heard Uh, this type of confidence before, this misplaced confidence in one's home city. Uh, The uh, the idea is as absurd to these worldly people that their city could ever be destroyed. Yet we see evidence throughout the scriptures that it does happen. And I mentioned Jerusalem and, and Ammonihah and of course King Noah and his island kingdom and the city that he was in became, um, uh, was, was destroyed as well. It's really almost comical to us here, I think, Uh, for these judges to say this about Zarahemla because as we have read through the book of Helaman, we've seen Zarahemla change hands. Uh, It happened first in Helaman chapter 1 where the invading Lamanites were actually able to conquer Zarahemla. Uh, That that was a first in the Nephite story even though the kingmen had conquered Zarahemla uh, in the later part of the book of Alma. Uh, So if we look at it that way, we can say that the incident in Helaman chapter 1 is the second time that Zarahemla has changed hands. And then in Helaman chapter 4, it happened again. Uh, The Lamanites attacked it once again. And then we found out that as a result of Nephi and Lehi's preaching, uh, Zarahemla was given back. So there is recent evidence of the city Zarahemla maybe not being destroyed in the way that they're envisioning, but certainly in being 
captivated or captured and taken over by the Lamanites. So this is misplaced confidence indeed. Another curious and ironic aspect to this is that these judges are the ones that are doing the reviling, uh, yet they accuse Nephi of reviling against them. But they are clearly reviling against Nephi. And we can also remember as we think back on the book of Helaman that it wasn't so long ago that he, or excuse me, that uh, that Nephi himself, this prophet speaking on the tower, was their chief judge. Surely these judges know this and remember this. The people in Ammonihah treated Alma in exactly the same way, in fact. They told Alma in Alma chapter 8, verse 12, And now we know that because we are not of thy church, we know that thou hast no power over us, and thou hast delivered up the judgment seat unto Nephiha. Therefore thou art not the chief judge over us. So it's exactly the same attitude here. Although the text uh, doesn't say it here in Helaman chapter 8, these judges could have said to Nephi, Thou art no longer the chief judge over us. McConkie and Millet have written, Those whose wickedness was exposed by Nephi responded with the ferociousness of a trapped animal. They could not lay hands on him for fear of the people, so they sought to turn the people against him. Of Nephi's warning of impending destruction, they said, This is impossible. We are powerful. Our city's great. Our enemies can have no power over us. Yet, they trembled at the testimony of a lone man. Truth is more powerful than great cities. Then this final summarizing statement by Mormon in verse 7 of this particular section, And it came to pass that thus they did stir up the people to anger against Nephi and raised contentions among them. We've seen this pattern over and over. That's what these dissenters have to do to the people. They have to go against their more spiritual inclinations and stir them up to anger. Now, thankfully, as verse 7 goes on and moves in through verse 9, we find that there are some in this assembled crowd who do defend Nephi. And, of course, as I've mentioned, we, we definitely got that impression already in the preceding verses because it was clear that these judges needed to do some convincing and some stirring up. For there were some who did cry out, Let this man alone, for he is a good man. And those things which he saith will surely come to pass, except we repent. Yea, behold, all the judgments will come upon us, which he has testified unto us. For we know that he has testified aright unto us concerning our iniquities. And behold, they are many. And he knoweth as well all things which shall befall us, as he knoweth of our iniquities. Yea, and behold, if he had not been a prophet, he could not have testified concerning those things. So these people are moved by what Nephi has said. They too probably knew him as the chief judge at one point, and perhaps they didn't have the same spiritual or religious inclinations, and so they didn't follow him uh, once he left the chief judgeship and began to preach and to minister. Or perhaps these were church members that were in the crowd. We, We can't know for sure. The bottom line is that they are emboldened in this instance to defend Nephi. Here's commentary from Ogden and Skinner, which um, discuss in particular these judges. It probably would have been better if I would have read this a few verses back, but they say, We see how powerful but corrupt men in high places can and do incite others to rebel against prophets and principles of righteousness. We note the self-serving argument of Nephi's opponents. We are too powerful and our city's too great to stand in any real danger. It is you, Nephi, who has the problem. This is the same argument used by Laman and Lemuel when they were told Jerusalem was in big trouble. It seems axiomatic that thoroughgoing wickedness almost always brings a false sense of security. Verse 10, now we'll find that Nephi is going to speak again. And it came to pass that those people who sought to destroy Nephi were compelled because of their fear. That they did not lay their hands on him, therefore he began again to speak unto them. Seeing that he had gained favor in the eyes of some, insomuch that the remainder of them did fear. Hugh Nibley has written, The great Nephi, when he dared criticize the lawyers, was in danger of his life at their hands, and was only saved because there were a few common people who still preserved a lingering sense of justice and fair play. Verse 11, Therefore he was constrained to speak more unto them, saying, Behold, my brethren, Have ye not read that God gave power unto one man, even Moses, 
to smite upon the waters of the Red Sea. I just want to link this to to where Nephi left off at the end of the previous chapter when he said, I'm not alone in the things that I'm saying. Uh, God has given these things to me. And so now he's picking back up with that idea right here in verse 11, saying that uh, you you would have considered Moses to be a lone man as well, but he wasn't alone either. Uh, He was uh, speaking the things to the people that God told him to. So that's why he's saying here in verse 11, God gave power unto one man, even Moses, to smite upon the waters of the Red Sea, and they parted hither and thither, insomuch that the Israelites, who were our fathers, came through on dry ground, and the waters closed upon the armies of the Egyptians and swallowed them up. This presupposes, by the way, that many, if not all of the people that were assembled in this multitude would have had a sense for who Moses was. So that raises some interesting questions because this was a depraved group of people. Brant Gardner has written, The Book of Mormon is a literate product of a literate culture. It references written texts. Nevertheless, behind the obvious literacy, there are clues to a primary orality in Nephite culture. The instances of text creation and most instances of reading texts suggest that documents were written by and for an elite class who were able to read and write. Even as Mormon and Moroni wrote, they wrote as though speaking, using techniques appropriate to oral performance adapted to the written text. And now, behold, as Nephi continues in verse 12, If God gave unto this man such power, meaning Moses, then why should ye dispute among yourselves and say that he hath given unto me no power, whereby I may know concerning the judgments that shall come upon you except ye repent? Now this is a very similar argument to what we use today. If the Lord has spoken through prophets in the past, in previous dispensations, could there not be a living prophet today that he also speaks through? As we know, it's a popular idea among Christianity that prophets like Moses and Abraham belonged to the past, but not to the present. So exactly the same thing seems to be happening here. Verse 13, But behold, ye not only deny my words, but ye also deny all the words which have been spoken by our fathers. Remember, as I mentioned in the introduction, that's what Nephi is very carefully doing here as a prophet. He is linking himself to the words of prophets from antiquity who had the same messianic moorings. They too spoke of the coming of the Messiah and had the same uh, message of repenting. So they always corroborate with one another when they do this. And Nephi is linking himself to them by saying that you are also, by denying me, you're denying the words which have been spoken by our fathers. And in this, this case, it's the fathers who you, you still respect as practitioners of the law of Moses. And also the words which were spoken by this man, Moses, who had such great power given unto him, yea, the words which he hath spoken concerning the coming of the Messiah. Yea, did he not bear record that the Son of God should come? And as he lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, even so shall he be lifted up who should come. And as many as should look upon that servant should live, even so as many as should look upon the Son of God with faith, having a contrite spirit, might live even unto that life which is eternal. This reference to the brazen serpent, uh, this is not the first time we've encountered this, of course, but it deserves some commentary for just a moment. In fact, some of the best commentary that we've encountered so far uh, was with reference to verses 19 through 20 in Alma chapter 33. At that time, Alma talked to the uh, poor Zoramites about that incident. Uh, involving the brazen serpent, and Ogden and Skinner provided this commentary, so I'll reread that here. They say, When the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the impatient and rebellious Israelites in the Sinai wilderness, Moses prayed for the people to be spared. The Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole, And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And that comes out of Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 through 9. New Testament writers saw in that event a type or similitude in anticipation of the Messiah. Quote, and this is coming from John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
And uh, that's fairly similar, actually, to the language that we just read from Nephi upon his tower in verses 14 and 15, or 13 through 15. Ogden and Skinner continue, As Israel had looked to the serpent on a pole to live, so they were now encouraged to look to their Redeemer, who would be lifted up and live. The serpent was apparently a symbol of God. From the very beginning, however, there was a perversion of the true symbol. Lucifer, or Satan, usurped the image to represent himself. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. That comes out of Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. The serpent beguiled or deceived and tricked Eve through his subtlety, as it was phrased in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Moses' serpent on a pole was able to heal, and the Savior who was lifted up on the cross is able to heal. The serpent's healing powers persisted in the mythologies of Near Eastern religions, even down to the Greco-Roman Asclepius, the god of healing and medicine. Healing, or medical centers, were established throughout the Roman Empire. For example, the Asclepium at Pergamum and the Asclepion in the island of Kos, where Hippocrates practiced for many years. The symbol of Asclepius was a serpent wrapped around a pole. Serpent images used as symbols of deities are found in most ancient Near Eastern and Mediterranean cultures. Today, the serpent wrapped around a pole is the symbol of the American Medical Association and other medical associations. The parallel of the serpent with God penetrated other ancient cultures as well. For example, the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl, precious serpent, reputedly lived in Coatzacoalos, which means sanctuary of the serpent. To ancient Mesoamericans, the serpent was associated with fertility, wisdom, and power. So Moses is one of the greatest testators of the Messiah. He is famous for that unique type he raised up in the wilderness. To rescue his people, he crafted the bronze serpent and lifted it up so the people could look upon it and avoid the deadly plague. It was easy to look, so many did look and live. But, Alma sadly commented, few understood the meaning of those things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. There were many who were so hardened that they would not look, therefore they perished. Imagine, a simple matter of glancing up to the symbol of the Savior, and they refused. Why? Now the reason they would not look is because they did not believe that it would heal them. That's what Alma said. There it is. It is exactly the same reason why many people stubbornly refuse to look to the master healer. They don't really believe that he will heal them. They don't believe that he is real, or that he lived and suffered for every one of us, or that he can heal them. And this way in which uh, believing precedes healing is also related, of course, to the way in which believing precedes seeing and understanding, which is a subject that we'll cover quite a bit in the next chapter in Helaman chapter 9. If people will look to him, they can be healed and live. He not only suffered for our sins, but our sicknesses. Through our faith in him, he can make us whole. Some of us refuse to look to him because we adopt the unbelieving attitude of Laman and Lemuel, quote, the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. Or in other words, he may heal others, but he wouldn't heal us. Now this is from Joseph Fielding McConkie with respect to the brazen serpent. The incident is one of the best known of the Old Testament types. Christ interpreted it, saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Quoting again there from John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Daniel Ludlow has written in his companion to your study of the Book of Mormon, The Savior also indicated that the brazen serpent lifted up by Moses was a type or shadow or example of his own crucifixion, when he said, quote, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Some scholars of the Book of Mormon have wondered if this story of the serpent as given in the Book of Helaman did not account for the serpent motif in the art and architecture of some of the American Indian cultures. Also, it is of interest to note that one of the names given by some of the American Indians to the great white god who appeared out of the eastern sky was the name of Quetzalcoatl, which literally means the bird serpent or the serpent of precious plumage. Now finally this from John L. Sorensen, who has written, The Old Testament prophets used the symbolic language of the Baalist worldview as a vehicle for teaching the people after the manner of their language, as Doctrine and Covenants 1 verse 24 says, 
Teaching has to begin where people's minds are, not where we wish they were. Prophets have done so in all ages without qualms, for symbolic language is necessary, particularly for talking of the unseen world, and it might as well be language people already know. So the Old Testament is full of allusions to sacred mountains, the great deep, doves, serpents, and whatnot, used to teach about Jehovah and about principles. Precisely the same phenomenon is visible in the Book of Mormon. Nephi taught about Christ as Redeemer by referring to him in terms of a major Mesoamerican and Old Testament sacred symbol, the elevated serpent who blesses. Now with all of that, returning back to the text here, again, Nephi is linking himself to another lone man who prophesied and was given what he should say by God and was leading the people to believe on the Messiah through the symbol of the brazen serpent. So verse 16, And now behold, Moses did not only testify of these things, but also all the holy prophets from his days even to the days of Abraham. So Nephi is not just linking himself to Moses, but all the holy prophets. Verse 17, Yea, and behold, Abraham saw of his coming, and was filled with gladness, and did rejoice. Yea, and behold, I say unto you that Abraham not only knew of these things, but there were many before the days of Abraham who were called by the order of God, yea, even after the order of his son, and this that it should be shown unto the people a great many thousand years before his coming, that even redemption should come unto them. So this is of great interest to us when we think about what these practitioners of the law of Moses knew and what they did not. The Bible gives us a very incomplete concept of practitioners of the law of Moses. We see people from Old Testament times who didn't have a concept of the Son who is coming, the Son of God, that he would uh, very clearly be the Messiah. But the Book of Mormon brings that peace back to us and it teaches us that these great prophets, these ancient prophets, who many of them were contemporaries with these Book of Mormon prophets, they most certainly did believe in the Son of God who was to come, and they were called after the holy order of God, even the order of his Son. That's a precious scriptural truth that was removed or expunged from the Old Testament record and is restored through the Book of Mormon. The holy order of God, uh, and after the order of his Son, is, uh, is a phrase that we've encountered elsewhere, particularly in Alma chapter 13. And when we uh, read through Alma chapter 13, we were given this commentary from Richard Rust. He said, We enter into the holy order of God through receiving the Melchizedek priesthood, inasmuch as the full name of the sacred authority is the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. At another level, we encounter the holy order of God through receiving the ordinances of the temple. Through receiving the endowment and the blessings of eternal marriage, The word order appears 14 times in Alma's teachings about the priesthood in Alma 13. Forms of ordain appear seven times, and ordinance or ordinances appears three times. The English words order, ordain, and ordinances all stem from the same root, Latin ordo, O-R-D-O, which means literally a straight row or regular series. To ordain originally meant to put in order and still has the force of that meaning. Verse 19, Nephi continues, And now I would that ye should know that even since the days of Abraham, there have been many prophets that have testified these things. Yea, behold, the prophet Zenos did testify boldly, for the which he was slain. We know and love Zenos already, of course, especially because of his great olive tree allegory. I think this is the first time that we understand that Zenos was slain. We know that he was such a great Old Testament prophet, or at least brass plates prophet. Verse 20, and behold also Zenech, and also Isaias, E-Z-I-A-S, and also Isaiah. So those are two different people. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah being that same prophet who testified of the destruction of Jerusalem. So Nephi throws that in parenthetically as if to say, there have been others who testified of the destruction of a city and they were not believed. And now we know that Jerusalem was destroyed according to the words of Jeremiah. Oh, then, why not the Son of God come according to his prophecy? So Nephi is extending his message from the original message that your city is going to be destroyed. You need to repent or you're going to be driven out of the land and it's going to be destroyed. 
He's linking himself to other prophets like Jeremiah that have delivered the same message, but then he is extending this message into one that is messianic, saying that Christ shall come again. And that is why we want to repent. This comes now from Monty Nyman when he talks about these prophets that have been mentioned. Zenos, Zenic, and Isaiah were prophets whose writings were found on the plates of brass but have been lost from the Old Testament. Their words are part of the plain and precious things spoken of by Nephi that have been lost from the record of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. That language came to us in 1 Nephi chapter 13. These prophets were descendants of Joseph. They testified of the Son of God and sealed their testimonies with their blood. We look forward to the time when other manuscripts come forward and verify these restored losses from the Bible. The book of Helaman verifies a number of Bible prophecies and calls attention to others that were once in the Bible, but were among the plain and precious parts lost as foreseen by Nephi. Nephi, the son of Helaman, identified Jeremiah as that same prophet who testified of the destruction of Jerusalem. This Jeremiah prophesied just prior to Lehi's party leaving Jerusalem about 600 BC. They would have known of Jeremiah's prophecies. The book of Jeremiah records many of his prophecies concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. The significance of Jeremiah's prophecies being known and spoken of among the Nephites about 600 years after they were given is twofold. First, that the Nephites came to their promised land just prior to the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecies. And second, how they knew that Jeremiah's prophecies had been fulfilled. The second point needs further analysis. The first way that the Nephites knew that Jeremiah's prophecies had been fulfilled was through a vision given to Father Lehi showing that Jerusalem had been destroyed. That was recorded in 2 Nephi chapter 1, verse 4. Later, the righteous Nephites, in journeying north, discovered the people of Zarahemla. Excuse me, Zarahemla. That was in Omni, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. These people had left Jerusalem at that time that Zedekiah, king of Judah, was carried away captive into Babylon just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Among these people was one of Zedekiah's sons named Mulek. Thus, the Nephites had a spiritual witness or a vision and a physical one that Jerusalem had been destroyed as prophesied by Jeremiah. So that was something that was clearly known by these Book of Mormon peoples. Hence, Nephi's comment now in verse 21, suggesting kind of the universality of that understanding in Nephite society. He says, And now, will ye dispute that Jerusalem was destroyed? Will ye say that the sons of Zedekiah were not slain, all except it were Mulek? Yea, and do ye not behold that the seed of Zedekiah are with us, and they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem? But behold, this is not all. So we can see that that was a widely accepted fact. Ogden and Skinner say the biblical record notes that the sons of King Zedekiah were killed before his eyes. Then he was blinded and hauled off to Babylonian captivity. That was recorded in 2 Kings chapter 25 and in Jeremiah chapter 39. The world is not aware, however, that one of Zedekiah's sons escaped from Jerusalem and helped lead another colony of immigrants to the New World. This verse in Helaman chapter 6 verse 10 identify that son as Mulek, who came to the Western Hemisphere to preserve the seed of Judah among the Israelites, who were, as prophesied, scattered upon all the face of the earth. Now Daniel Ludlow has written, Mulek was the son of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, who was spared at the time of the Babylonian captivity and who later came to the Americas. The descendants of Mulek were included among the people of Zarahemla, and later they were numbered among the Nephites. Thus, among the combined Nephite-Lamanite-Mulekite peoples are represented at least three of the twelve tribes of ancient Israel. One, the tribe of Manasseh, represented by the descendants of Lehi. Two, the tribe of Ephraim, represented by the descendants of Ishmael. And three, the tribe of Judah, represented by the descendants of Mulek. Verse 22, Our father Lehi was driven out of Jerusalem because he testified of these things. Nephi also testified of these things, and almost all of our fathers, even down to this time. Yea, they have testified of the coming of Christ, and have looked forward, and have rejoiced in his day which is to come. So Nephi has linked himself, giving him credibility to Moses, saying, Moses stood alone among the people, just as I have stood alone among you. Uh, and testified of these things, as has Abraham, as has the brass plates prophets, whom we revere, as has Jeremiah, who has, who predicted correctly the downfall of the city of Jerusalem, just as I am correctly predicting the downfall of the city of Zarahemla, and of course, Nephi and Lehi, 
So he's linking himself to all of them and then projecting that forward to the coming of Christ, saying that that ultimately is what they were testifying of and that too is what he is testifying of. So again, Nephi says, the coming of Christ and have looked forward and have rejoiced in his day, which is to come. Verse 23, and behold, he is God and he is with them and he did manifest himself unto them that they were redeemed by him and they gave unto him glory because of that which is to come. So these ancient prophets who lived long ago, uh, it seems that Nephi is speaking in present tense by saying that God is with them. That's a very great uh, and, and brilliant piece of insight right there where, where he uses that tense and talks about the way that God is with them. We know that that most certainly is true today as well, that he is with his prophets, present tense. Thomas R. Valletta has written, Nephi listed these additional prophetic witnesses in order to show that he was not alone in testifying of Jesus Christ. If men deny Nephi's witness of Jesus Christ, they would also be denying the testimonies of these other great prophets. Moses bore record that Christ would come and be lifted up as the brazen serpent was in the wilderness. Abraham rejoiced, knowing that Christ would come. Zenos boldly testified of Christ, for which he was slain. Zenoch taught that mercy would come through the Son of God. Uh, Isaiah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, thousands of years before Christ came, testified of his coming, and their references to, to all of those statements. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie has written, Christ Messiah is God. Such is the plain and pure pronouncement of all the prophets of all the ages. In our desire to avoid the false and absurd conclusions contained in the creeds of Christendom, we are wont to shy away from this pure and unadorned verity. If we are to envision our Lord's true status and glory, we must come back to the pronouncement of pronouncements, the doctrine of doctrines, the message of messages, which is that Christ is God, and if it were not so, he could not save us. That's out of the promised Messiah. Verse 24, And now, seeing ye know these things, and cannot deny them except ye shall lie, therefore in this ye have sinned, for ye have rejected all these things, notwithstanding so many evidences which, have rece- which ye have received. Yea, even ye have received all things, both things in heaven and all things which are in earth, as a witness that they are true. Now regarding this passage that we've just read, as Nephi uh, speaks of the witness that has been born of all of these other prophets in addition to himself. Ogden and Skinner have written, Here is one of the best passages in all of Scripture on proving Christ. This later Nephi, along with all other prophets, rejoiced in the coming of Christ and delighted to show the evidence of his imminent mission and ministry. The original Nephi, who left Jerusalem in the year 600 B.C., wrote, Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. God sendeth more witnesses, and he proveth all his words. That was in 2 Nephi chapter 11. As with these Nephi's, and with the New Testament period apostle Matthew, see particularly Matthew chapters 1 and 2, we also delight in proving the coming of Christ. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth, it was asked? The answer was, come and see. Alma and Amulek proved that the word is in Christ unto salvation. They called on the words of Zenos, Zenoch, and Moses to prove that these things are true. Nephi and Lehi wrote about the greatness of the evidences. Uh, that phrase was used, by the way, in Helaman chapter 5. Here, this later Nephi gave us the most detailed list of those who testified of the coming of the Son of God. Moses, Abraham, Zenos, Zenoch, Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lehi, and Nephi, and almost all our of our fathers have testified of the coming of Christ. We have indeed received so many evidences. Now that Nephi has so beautifully established this, he comes back around to the people and their state of wickedness, the thing that he addressed in the opening of his tower sermon in Helaman chapter 7. And he'll say this in verses 25 and 26, But behold, ye have rejected the truth, and rebelled against your holy God, and even at this time, instead of laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where nothing doth corrupt, and where nothing can come which is unclean, ye are heaping up for yourselves wrath against the day of judgment. Yea, even at this time ye are ripening, because of your murders and your fornication and wickedness, for everlasting destruction, yea, and except ye repent, it will come unto you soon." 
So now he's bringing this concept to the present once again. And now that he has kind of cast this multitude, as he's cast their minds towards the past and had them think about these ancient prophets, and as he's had them look forward into the indefinite future, um, indefinite in terms of time, uh, not indefinite in terms of what will happen uh, when he's speaking to them of the coming of Christ. But now he uses the word soon in verse 26 and says, except you repent, it will come unto you soon. So soon, in fact, that he will now give them a sign to show that it's at their doors. Before we move into that, which is the final two verses of this chapter, uh, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has written in his book, Christ in the New Covenant, as the advent of Christ approached, social order, excuse me, social disorder, it increased with burgeoning warfare, murder, and political disarray. To counter this trend and give hope, Nephi invoked the ancient teachings his people knew so well, testifying of these problems and the coming of the Messiah who would resolve them. Now again, and as I kind of mentioned in the introduction to this chapter, Nephi is so effectively linking himself to the wisdom and the prophetic gift and the messianic message of the ancients that he's establishing himself that way. And now we see that that's what a true prophet does. Now we're going to discover that a true prophet can also predict the immediate future with incredible clarity and detail. And that's what will unfold for us as we move into this last small little segment, these last two verses of Helaman chapter 8, and then as uh, we turn into Helaman chapter 9 and read about his incredibly detailed prophecy of the murder of the chief judge in Zarahemla. So now he's bringing us into that, and he's demonstrating the prophetic gift in a new way. Verse 27, Yea, behold, it is now even at your doors. Again, he just said, This destruction will come unto you soon. Now he's really going to bring it home. It is now even at your doors. Yea, go ye in unto the judgment seat and search. And behold, your judge is murdered, and he lieth in his blood. And he hath been murdered by his brother who seeketh to sit in the judgment seat. And behold, they who both belong to your secret band, whose author is Gadianton, and the evil one who seeketh to destroy the souls of men. Nephi is careful to add that detail then, that this has to do with Gadianton and his secret band, and he is naming that band, probably to the chagrin of those who are among the multitude, those judges in particular who are of Gadianton's band. And we learn or at least wonder something very compelling about the prophetic gift in verse 27 as he tells them to go in unto the judgment seat, and as he says, in present tense, your judge is murdered. Uh, We know that prophecy is a gift where one can look forward into the future. We also learn in the book of Revelation, of course, that prophecy fundamentally is the testimony of Jesus, uh, which it's quite interesting because in this chapter, Nephi keeps tying his prophetic gift to the prophetic gift of the ancients and that all of them were doing the same thing, which was to testify of Jesus or of the Messiah. So we can see that as well. But we often tend to think of prophecy as an ability to look into the future and to see detail. That, of course, is true. But as Daniel Ludlow has pointed out, simply being able to see into the past with clarity is also a very difficult task for us as mortals with our limited view. And that's even when we have the help of, of, of history, because it's always through the lens of a mortal who has such an opaque view of the past. And so, The prophetic gift most certainly allows one to look into the past as well. But here the present tense is being used. And uh, this murder of the chief judge seems to have just immediately happened. Uh, Either that or it's just immediately about to happen. Uh, And that fact will become more clear to us in the next chapter. So we'll talk about it more then. But we can see then that this prophetic gift is not limited to looking into the future. But it's most certainly having a greater understanding of the present and the immediate past and the distant past. Well, as we come to the end of this chapter, Ogden and Skinner have written, This constitutes part two of Nephi's Tower Sermon. In addressing the corrupt judges and those they incited, Nephi summoned the testimony and works of deceased prophets to stand as witnesses against his opponents. These prophets all testified of Christ. So indeed, this brings us to the end of part two of Nephi's Great Tower Sermon. In part one of that sermon in Helaman chapter 7, he spoke extensively of the way in which the Nephites had violated 
that great and uh, pervasive covenant in the Book of Mormon record that inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land, but if you don't, you'll be cut off. And he tells them how they are going to be cut off. Then in the second part in Helaman chapter 8, he once again has linked himself to these other prophets who also seemingly stood alone in their message as they spoke to the people, but they indeed were not alone. And their message had been given to them by God, and they were giving the same message to the people that other prophets had also given. And that message goes far beyond just the idea that your city will be destroyed. At the center of the message of these great prophets has always been the same thing, which is the coming of the Messiah and his salvific power. So it's a truly remarkable two-chapter section in the Book of Mormon, and it has been a, a, a privilege to hear directly from Nephi. We already had the sense that he is a truly great character in the Book of Mormon. Uh, this sense will continue now as we turn the page after being provided with such an intriguing piece of information. Again, probably the most uh, intriguing cliffhanger in all of the Book of Mormon as we move into chapter 9 and uh, read about what these people are to see when they run to the judgment seat and, uh, and verify Nephi's prophetic words. So for now, this brings us to the end of Helaman chapter 8. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.